Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. With your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello, hello again. Thank you, my girl, for introducing me. It is I, Shannon Riley, your host for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. My thanks to everybody at 75 Live for letting me come on once a week to talk about the world's greatest playwright. And I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I don't claim to be one, but I am a Shakespeare fanatic who loves to read about Shakespeare, watch performances of Shakespeare, and it's my uh, great joy to come and and talk to you about these shows each and every week. And right now, I'm on my magical journey of trying to talk about each one of Shakespeare's plays in order as we go through his entire body of work, and I'm up to the sixth play. Now, before I go further, I do want to make something very clear. There are a lot of different lists that say different plays were written in different order, It's very hard for us to know when a play, a certain play was written, and when a certain play was published. They're sometimes separated by many, many years. Sometimes the records are lost. So it's really hard to really understand when these plays happen. So I just arbitrarily picked one particular list that I thought made the most sense. And that's the list I'm following in terms of the order of the plays being written. I'm not by any means trying to say this is exactly how it is and there's there's no question because there's a lot of question. However, today, the question of when this play was written, I think, is profound because this play is incredibly unique. And the play I'm going to talk about today, which I'm calling the sixth work of William Shakespeare's, is his first non-history play. It's his first tragedy and arguably his most successful work, but contemporary audiences do not like this play. Even into the 18th and 19th century, this play was practically ignored and vilified, and questions of its authenticity have existed almost from the very beginning. And that play is Shakespeare's revenge drama, Titus Andronicus. 
It's a really tough play to read and a tougher play to watch. Uh, it's his revenge drama. It is incredibly violent, more violent than any of his other plays. And as I talk about this play today, I'm going to talk about why, when it was written, is a very big deal and how much of it really is Shakespeare's, because we don't know. And there are some scholars who believe this entire play was written entirely by Shakespeare, and there's some scholars who believe he wrote only portions of it. I'm going to try and share the facts as we know them with you today, and you can make up your own mind. But first of all, as always, it's my boy who tells us about the... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, the Shakespeare quote of the week. And of course, the quote of the week comes from Titus Andronicus... And it's, now, what a thing it is to be an ass from Act 4, Scene 2. I thought it was the less violent of uh, quotes I could use, but I thought it was a, a funny quote. What a thing it is to be an ass. I'm going to start saying that all the time now. I think it's funny. All right, so when we're, when we're talking about Titus Andronicus, again, we're talking about uh, a play that's well over 400 years old, just like all of his plays are. And as I've mentioned before many, many times in previous episodes of my uh, podcast here, that it's very important you see Shakespeare in the time it was written. Don't look at it from the eyeballs of contemporary artists and, and audiences. You've got to look at it through the eyeballs of the Elizabethan audience and the Elizabethan performers, because then you understand why it was written so much better. The year here is 1594. It's one of Shakespeare's most prolific years. He starts off with Edward III, which I talked about last week, but then he moves in and writes five more plays this year. It's, it's quite prolific. And the first one of them is his first tragedy, Titus Andronicus, which also has the great honor of being the first one of his plays to be published. Before I get into the nitty gritty on this particular play, I thought I'd give you a Shakespeare fun fact. And I came across this actually just recently as I was doing research on it, if indeed Shakespeare did write this play, where the title comes from, Titus Andronicus, might actually come from a very old story that we all know, Androcles and the Lion. You see, during Shakespeare's time, this story was already published, but it was Andronicus and the Lion. And the villainous emperor in the story of Andronicus and the Lion was Titus who enjoys throwing slaves to the lions and watching them being devoured. And one day he throws Andronicus to the lion, and the lion doesn't attack him. Instead, it licks his feet, and Andronicus tells Titan, I cannot be devoured by this lion, for once I pulled a thorn from his paw. Now, that's the story of Androcles and the lion. It was a very old story, even by the time Shakespeare had come across it, and did he possibly borrow these two names to make the title of his play? We don't know, but it's a, it's a Shakespeare fun fact, so it's fun to think about. So I'm going to go really quickly, as best I can anyway, because the plot is very, very convoluted. But I'm going to go through the plot of Titus Andronicus so you know how it all shakes out. Now, first of all, it takes place during ancient reign of Rome. Now, Shakespeare doesn't really give us a time that it takes place in, although the Goths are attacking the Roman Empire. So it kind of gives a, an impression it's around 380, 390 AD. And the story is about Titus, who is returning after 10 years fighting the war uh, back to Rome. Titus has been incredibly successful at fighting the Goths and driving them back. And indeed, he has captured the queen of the Goths, Tamora, and he brings with her Tamora's three sons, Alarbus, Chiron, and Demetrius, as well as Aaron the Moor, which is Shakespeare's first African-American character, and one of the main villains of the story, 
And he brings these people back, these five people back as slaves for the Roman Empire and as tribute to his fine duty in winning his war against the Goths. Now, the other thing about Titan is Titan has 25 sons. He's lost 21 of them in this war, and he returns with only four sons left, which is a big key element. It's a revenge drama, and we're going to have a lot of things to take revenge about. Now, as he returns to Rome, he finds out that the people are so impressed with him and so enamored of his great leading of the army against the Goths that they want him to become emperor, which he refuses. And instead, he turns to the two sons of the previous emperor. They are Saturnus and Bassinius. Now, Saturnus is the older brother. He claims the throne. He says, as the older child, I should have role as emperor. And Bassinius wants it because he thinks he'll be a much better leader than, than his older and rat brash brother. Titus is given the chance to decide who will become emperor. And because Bassinius is already pledged to marry his daughter Lavinia, he thinks this is a great choice. And since Saturnus really respects Titus, he also thinks it's a great choice. So they allow Titus to select the winner. And by all surprise, he selects Saturnius, the older brother. So Saturnius is suddenly emperor. And Saturnius, in order to thank Titus for what that great gift he has given him, he says, I will take your daughter Lavinia as my bride and she will be empress of Rome, to which Titus agrees. Completely forgetting that Titus had already agreed to allow Bassinius to marry his daughter Lavinia. And Lavinia is madly in love with Bassinius and can't stand Saturnus. So already there is a dynamic there that's going to play out. Now, the four sons that are left of Titus are Lucius, Quintus, Mauritius, and Mutitius. These are all the sons of Titus Andronicus. His oldest son, Lucius, says, We demand our rights as conquering heroes for a sacrifice. And they decide that the sacrifice will come from the slaves they have returned to Rome with. And that is Tamora and her three sons, as well as the Moor. They select Tamor's oldest son, Alarbus, as the tribute that they will sacrifice to the gods and thanking them for their victory over the Goths. Tamora begs, but Titus will not be quelled, and Alarbus is taken away, and he is sacrificed. This starts the first act of revenge that Tamora is not going to let go. Well, later that night, Lavinia and Bassinius run away. They decide that their their love is too great and they're not going to surrender their love so that she can be in a loveless marriage with his older brother. So Bassinius and Lavinia run away, and they run away with the aid of three of the sons of Titus. Titus is so enraged when he finds out they ran away that he rushes in to confront them and, in a fit of rage, kills one of his sons, Mutitius. Meanwhile, the emperor has found out that his bride-to-be has run off and is furious and demands that Titus be surrendered up for judgment. Titus tries to say, I, I tried to stop them. This wasn't my plan. I, I, I'm sorry, my lord. But Saturnus is angry. And in payment back, so angry about what had happened, he decides to make Tamara his new queen. This, this queen of the Goths will be the new emperor of Rome, Goth queen. And he decides to replace Lavinia with her. Then he decides to take out Titus for this brash act that has so enraged him. But Tamara stops him. Tamara says, no, leave Titus alone. It's not his fault. Let's uh, let bygones be bygones. She doesn't really mean that. She wants to slowly torture Titus. She wants to slowly kill him. She doesn't want this to be easy. And this sets apart her plan for revenge. 
Meanwhile, Aaron, who's just lost his lover, Tamora, to Saturnus the Emperor, set about more revenge against Titus. So he goes to the surviving sons of Tamara and says, You know what you two should do? Tomorrow on the hunt, you both love Lavinia. She's beautiful. She's now going to be married to Vicinius. Let's get them separated during the hunt tomorrow in the woods. Kill Vicinius, and you two can take your turns with Lavinia. Both of these young men, Chiron and Demetrius, love this idea, and they agree to do it. The next day in the woods, they get Vicinius alone, and they kill him and throw him in a pit. Then they turn to Lavinia and say, we're going to take you into the woods and we're going to rape you. She says, please, just kill me. Throw me in the pit with my love. I'd rather have that than anything else. They refuse, and they drag her off into the woods. Meanwhile, Tamara and Aaron forge a letter to make it look like it, the killing of Vicinius was done by Lucius, Titus's oldest son. They present this to Saturnus, who's so angry at the loss of his brother, he demands that Lucius be brought to him, but uh, Titus instead makes sure that he's hidden and out of sight. So Saturnus demands the head of Titus's other surviving sons, Quintus and Martitius. They're dragged off to be beheaded, and Titan, Titus begs for them to be released. Well, uh, Aaron shows up at his house and says, I've talked to the emperor, and he says, if you give him your hand, he will spare your son's life. So he immediately agrees and allows Aaron to chop off his hand. Aaron leaves and comes back with a package for Titus. It is, of course, not only his hand, but the bloody heads of his two sons. Meanwhile, Titus's brother finds Lavinia wandering through the woods. She has been brutalized. Her hands have been cut off and her tongue is cut out. They don't know what has happened to her. So finally, she's able to point to a story in Ovid where Philomena is taken and raped, points at it, points at herself, and then, using a stick that she holds in her mouth, draws in the dirt the names of the two men who assaulted her, which are Chiron and Demetrius, the sons of Tamara. This is it for Titus. He decides he's really going to get revenge now on these people. And so what he does is he sends Lucius off to the Goths and says to the Goths, raise an army, we're going to help you invade Rome. So off Lucius goes to get this army pulled together. In the meantime, Tamara, who we've not seen any sign that she's pregnant up to that point, gives birth. And the child she gives birth to is none other but a dark-skinned baby. Meaning, of course, it is the illegitimate child of Aaron. Aaron kills the midwife and immediately takes the baby and flees the city, fearing that the, both he and the baby will be killed if they're caught by Saturnus. Out in the woods, Aaron gets captured by the Goths, who are being led by Lucius. Lucius threatens to kill the baby unless he tells him what's going on, and Aaron confesses to everything, saying that, yes, indeed, he did all these crimes and did help Tamara come up with a way to make get even with Titus. So he's taken into custody, and Lucius marches on to Rome. Meanwhile, Titus starts acting like he's gone mad. He ties messages to the gods to bows and arrows and fires them into the air. He screams at his brother Marcus for killing a fly, for that fly might have had a mother and a father. His unbalanced nature seems to be everything that Tamara would seem to enjoy. So she decides to make it worse. She convinced her two sons and, he, and she to dress up as the gods of vengeance, murder, and rape and to show up at his house in the middle of the night and claim that they will help him get even with all the people who have trespassed against him. Titus immediately pretends that he knows exactly that they are gods and that he will do whatever they command him to do. Tamara, as this god of vengeance, decides to leave, but Titus convinces her to leave the other two gods with him while they plot their revenge. 
Tamara leaves, and he takes the two gods into his house, immediately exposes them as Sharon and Demetrius, has them bound, hung upside down, cuts their throat, and then grinds their bones and their meat and bakes their head into a pie. The next day, he invites Saturnus and Tamara to come to a feast of reconciliation at his home. They come to the home, sit down to eat, and as they are eating this meat pie that uh, is provided for him, Titus asks the emperor, what should he do if his daughter is raped? Should she be allowed to live or should she be killed so that she no longer has to suffer the sting of what is this horrible crime that has happened to her? The emperor says, of course, she should not live. And out of the blue, Titus grabs a knife and kills his own daughter, Lavinia. Then they call for the two brothers to come out, Sharon and Demetrius, and say, where are they? They should be here at this feast. And he says, they are at the feast. As a matter of fact, tomorrow is enjoying a nice bite of them right now. She screams in anguish when she realizes she's eating her own children, and Titus jumps on her and stabs her, Saturnus. Then jumps on him and stabs Titus, just as Saturnus kills Titus in through the door, bursts Lucius. They have successfully taken the city of Rome with the Goth army, and Lucius kills Saturnus. He now proclaims himself as Emperor of Rome, but there'll be a new Rome, one that doesn't have all of this vengeance. But at the same time, he then says, take Saturnus away and bury him with all the pomp and circumstances of a head of state. Take my father and my sister and bury them in our family tomb. But as for Tamara, throw her body out into the woods and let her be devoured by wild animals. And for Aaron, well, Aaron is taken out into the street, buried up to his neck, where he will die of starvation and thirst. And as Aaron is being buried, the only thing he says to everybody around him is he wishes he had been more evil and he's sorry for any good deed he ever did in his life. And that's the story of Titus Andronicus. Whoa, a lot of fun, that one. Very funny. All right, I want to talk about this play on the other side now that you know the evil, vicious intent of Titus Andronicus. So I'll be back in just a few minutes as we talk about Shakespeare's first drama. See you on the other side. And welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. It's my pleasure to come and talk to you every Sunday about Shakespeare. And today we're talking about Titus Andronicus, one of the most revered and hated plays of William Shakespeare's career. I say revered because, again, you have to think of the time when it was written. Elizabethans were brutal people. They loved this stuff. I mean, Quentin Tarantino would have been very successful in Elizabethan England. They loved blood. They loved gore. One of the most successful plays of the time was a play by Thomas Kidd called The Spanish Tragedy, which was a revenge drama of epic scale with people taking revenge out on each other all over the place. Titus Andronicus would have wanted to try and be in that vein. So that's, I think, one of the things we need to talk about is why did Shakespeare write this? Well, first of all, if it did fall right after the histories, he was into his first fictional play. He draws on inspiration from Greek classics, from Ovid to a variety of other tales that he might have had access to and read to create these characters and to tell this story. However, it lacks nuance. It lacks that Shakespearean touch. It's very, it was very hard for me to find a quote in the play that is just really an enjoyable quote to even share. It is, a matter of fact, one of those plays that couldn't even get really stage performances of it 
until the early 20th century. It was considered just too vulgar and too vile, but Elizabethans loved it. In the 20 years that Shakespeare was writing plays in London, Titus Andronicus never went out of publication and was constantly being put on stages. It was his most successful play of them all, and it was his first one. So, did he write it? And when did he write it? Now, if it was in 1594, which it could have been, our biggest clue is a mention in the diary by Philip Henslow, who was a theatrical producer and uh, the proprietor of the Rose Theater. Now, he wrote in his diary in 1594 that there was a performance by the Sussex men of Titus Andronicus, new play at the Rose. Now, he doesn't say new. He says N-E, and scholars believe the N-E stood for new play. But did he mean it was a new play just recently written or just recently published? Not only was this Shakespeare's first non-history play, it was his first tragedy and it was the first one to be published and was published multiple times. Now, this was the English Renaissance. During the Renaissance, everything Roman was cool. That's why you see so many of Shakespeare's plays being set in Italy, in Rome. Why you see so much written on Roman history and Roman stories of Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra. But this is, this is different than any other tragedy he wrote. And here's a question we have about when it was written. Ben Johnson, in 1614, in a foreword of a new play that he was writing, but he said the two greatest plays were Spanish Tragedy and Titus Andronicus. And for 25 to 30 years, they have ruled the British stage. Okay, that works for Thomas Kidd. That play was successful even before that. But if he's saying Titus Andronicus is even as old as, as Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy, that puts it back to around 1584. Shakespeare's still in Stratford-on-Avon. His twins have just been born. Did he write this play possibly when he was still living in Stratford? Is it possible it was his very first play? And if it was, was it this play that he presented to those roving traveling players that came through his city who were short one member for their team, who looked at his play and said, this man has potential, you're coming back with us to London. Did Titus Andronicus get Shakespeare to London? Or, once he arrived, did he see the types of plays that were being done in London, which would have been very different than what would have been presented in the countryside? And did he say to himself, I need to write a play like that, a play with blood and guts and, and revenge? So that's the question. When he wrote the play, as I said, it was one of the, it was the first one to be published. So it was in the first quarter, which is called Q1. And postscript of the, the play, it says that it had three different playing companies that produced this play before publication. Derby's Men, Pembroke's Men, and the Sussex Men. In a later publication, it also lists the Lord Chamberlain's Men. So it was not only a question of who owned the play and who was going to be doing the play, but how many companies produced it. If that many companies produced it, it had to have been around for a while. You didn't just produce a play one time and then sell it to another company. You would have kept it in your repertoire after going through all the trouble of learning it, staging it, working on it. You kept plays around for a few years. So it puts more age on the play than what Henslow's diary does. But certainly, could it be as old as what Ben Jonson is suggesting? And if it is as old as Ben Jonson is suggesting, Shakespeare was a playwright before he ever made it to London. So this question of when it was written is one of the first things that's also startling to me. But there's another thing that's startling to me about this play, and that is, if this really is a work of William Shakespeare, why is no other play of his like this play? 
As I mentioned, it has none of the nuance of Shakespeare. It has none of the beautiful poetic language. It's all blood and guts and gore. It's like suddenly having Merchant and Ivory producing Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Why? Why is no other place Shakespeare writes like this? Now, yes, he had death and murder in other plays, and Macbeth is certainly filled with a lot of death. Hamlet is certainly filled with a lot of death, but not like this. Not all these dismembered heads. He even has a moment where Lavinia, who has no hands because her hands have been cut off, having to carry her father's severed hand in her mouth like a dog as she runs behind him. This is incredibly violent. It has cannibalism, racism, mutilation, rape, murder. It's it's unlike any other. And let's talk about Aaron for a second, because he's your first African-American character that is discovered in Shakespeare's play. He is vile. He's as bad as Iago is later in Othello. So if this really was Shakespeare's play, why didn't he write another play about it? And if it wasn't Shakespeare's play, whose play is it? Now enter a playwright by the name of George Peel. Now, George Peel was writing plays and poems in London long before Shakespeare even got there. And his plays and poems were violent, really violent, with blood and gore and guts and rape and murder. Now, as I said, Shakespeare came in and worked with these other playwrights to learn maybe the tutelage of how to become a playwright under these other playwrights as he put together his first tetralogy, Henry VI, Part 1, 2, and 3, and Richard III, and even Edward III. Was he still taking lessons from these playwrights? And maybe was George Peel one of them? Is it possible that George Peel even gave Shakespeare an unfinished manuscript and Shakespeare finished it? It's important to note that when it appeared in the Cordo when it was first published, no playwright is listed. But that was not uncommon for the Elizabethan audiences. Most of the time, people didn't think that much about the playwright. It wasn't until Shakespeare later had a name for himself that they would have said, we want to make sure Shakespeare's name is on this play. So, did George Peel write this play? Or is there evidence that Shakespeare wrote the whole thing? In 1592, Shakespeare was busying himself writing poems because the theaters were shut down during the plague. During this time, he wrote Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucerne. Is it possible, bearing himself in all of this Roman idea, mythology, and stories to build these two narrative poems, that he developed a taste for what would later become Titus Andronicus? Or, again, could it possibly be that George Peel gave him an unfinished work and didn't care about it? If so, though, and it became such a hit as it was, and again, it was a huge hit, wouldn't George Peel have come back and said, hey, I need some credit for this? I need somebody to know that at least I had a part of it? We all know theater people. They like to get credit for what they do. To me, the three biggest questions about Titus Andronicus happened to be, one, when was it written? Did he write it in Stratford-on-Avon and use it to get to London, his ticket into London? Or did he write it when he got here? Two, did he write it alone? You can't really see the subtlety of Shakespeare's writing here. But again, if he's a young playwright, if he's starting out writing his first fictitious piece, is it possible that this polishing, delicious verbiage that he develops later in years just hadn't developed yet? How many of us would look back at a, one of the very earliest things we wrote and went, ick, I hope nobody ever reads this. And then the third big point to me is, did George Peel actually write it? 
and give him a great play to build off of. Now, some scholars have tried the computer method, trying to figure out, did possibly someone else write portions of the play? They do seem to see discrepancy among certain acts that Shakespeare's thumbprint seems to be on several scenes, whereas in other scenes, it just doesn't seem likely. But it's all inconclusive. We don't know. We don't know if Shakespeare wrote this alone or in part, but we do know that when it went to his friends to put together his greatest works, it was included in the first folio. It was popular enough that they knew that they had to make sure Shakespeare's play, which is credited as Shakespeare's play in later quartos, that they've got included in the folio, that this is his biggest work, most successful, and it must be included. So his friends called it a Shakespeare. His friends believed it was totally a Shakespeare, and they didn't worry about any notations for anybody else. But they didn't do that for any play, and we know pretty well that Shakespeare had help on his first tetralogy. Titus Andronicus has a very mixed bag. And when I first decided to do this breakdown of all the plays I knew, I said to myself, Shannon, you're going to have to talk about Titus, and you don't want to talk about Titus. And I don't. I don't enjoy this play. It's incredibly violent and incredibly vile, and directors have seemed to embrace this over the years. There was a production of it on the West End that apparently used so much fake blood and had so much violence in it that people fainted in the audience and some people got sick. (laughs) Julie Taymor's film version, Titus, starring Anthony Hopkins, I think is absolutely terrible. It's, It's violent, but it also filled with imagery that is unnecessary and muddies up the story itself. You can't even tell when this play is supposed to take place. It's indescribable in terms of its unity, its music, its costume design. It's a pitiful, pitiful movie, in my opinion. The question is, did Shakespeare write it? Well, according to scholars, enough of it is, and it's there. And it's funny that the most successful play of the man who we consider to have written some of the most beautiful language is a play that contains so little of that flowery poetry, so little of that imagery. It is a play of blood, guts, and gore. And it was a huge hit. So check out Titus Andronicus. See if I'm right. See if you agree with me. Or see if maybe you think I gave it a uh, bad grade for no reason. I do think that the success of Titus Andronicus did a lot to cement Shakespeare as a star in the Elizabethan theater world. He suddenly was a man writing plays very quickly and very fast. And he was breaking out of histories into comedies and dramas. This tragedy may not be my favorite, but it may have made Shakespeare who Shakespeare is. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. It's a pleasure to talk to you every Sunday. I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to drop me a line or give me a message, you can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. And I'd love to hear from you. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. We'll see you next Sunday. And as always, stay barred to the bone. Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in.